Welcome to Trust Issues, a podcast by Kepler Trust Intelligence. Please be aware that there can be a time lag when we release podcasts, meaning time-sensitive information may no longer be accurate at the time of publication. Also note that past performance is not a reliable indicator of future results. The value of investments can fall as well as rise, and you may get back less than you invested when you decide to sell your investments. It's strongly recommended that if you are a private investor, independent financial advice should be taken before making any investment or financial decision. Finally, Kepler Partners LLP has a relationship with the company covered in this podcast, which may impair its objectivity. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Trust Issues. This week, I am joined by Dean Orico. Dean is the CEO and president of the Middlefield Group. Middlefield is a specialist and equity income asset management group based in Canada. Uh, and today we'll be talking about one of the trusts which Middlefield manages, which is Middlefield Canadian Income. So Dean, thanks very much for joining us. I think most people listening can probably infer from the name what it is that MCT does. Uh, but just for people that aren't familiar with you and, and with the trust, can you talk a bit about what you do and how you invest and those sorts of things? Sure. Thanks, David. Um, appreciate you having me today. So Middlefield is a... Um, Canadian headquartered company. We were established in 1979 and we're an equity income specialist. So we really focus on dividend paying stocks and we manage strategies for Canadian investors as well as uh, UK investors. We've been in the UK since the early 1990s, registered with the FCA, regulated by the FCA. And uh, we've been um, managing money for UK investors for you know over two decades now. And then 2006, we launched Middlefield Canadian Income, which is listed on the LSE. And it's really been, was designed and is providing UK-based investors with exposure to North America, but with a real Canadian nexus. So we'd be the only North American fund that has a significant weighting to Canada. Uh, most North American funds that are listed on the LSE really are US focused. So we think there's some really unique attributes about the Canadian market, which we provide investors exposure to in our fund. And we pay a uh, a high and uh, stable level of uh, distribution, currently at 5.2p per annum. Um, so that's about a um, 5% yield to investors, which is you know very competitive in today's environment. And we think that yield has the potential to grow over time because the vast majority of the companies in our portfolio are very growth focused as well in terms of dis distributions and dividends. So we're going to be passing that on to investors and we're running a covered dividend uh, this year. So we think there's the potential to deliver higher levels of income to investors over time. And we, we're also, uh, in terms of process, um, you know, what I describe as a high conviction manager. So Middlefield Canadian, as well as any of our other funds uh, here in Canada are, um, focused on what we believe to be uh, the highest quality companies in their specific area of focus. So whether that be a, a real estate fund or a healthcare fund, or in the case of Middlefield Canadian, a diversified income fund, 
Um, we've got plenty of companies to choose from because this is a very income-focused equity market here in Canada. And we hold anywhere between 35 and 40 names. So that's where you know, we're more high conviction. Um, and uh, generally speaking, no one company in our portfolio would have a weighting of less than 1%. So you have to have enough conviction in it to make it at least a 1% weighting. Um, on average, they're somewhere between 25 and 3%. And then um, at the high end, even our highest conviction name uh, would typically be no more than 5% of the portfolio. And that's the way we control the risk in the fund. And, and every company in the portfolio pays a dividend. And that would be, again, typical of our other Canadian funds. So it's actively managed, real top-down analysis in terms of what we believe to be you know, the best sectors to invest in. And then we populate the portfolio in those sectors with what we think are the highest quality names and these are typically large liquid businesses that we think in today's environment really represent excellent value. Okay, so one of the things you touched on there is the fact that most of your of your peers in the North American sector really invest in the U.S. Um, I mean, if you look at U.S. valuations today, they're, they're extremely high. So actually, I wrote something last week basically looking at, at research by J.P. Morgan. And if you look at, say, P.E. ratios, they're pretty much on the same level as they were during the dot-com bubble. Um, there's a lot of froth in the markets. Um, how does Canada compare there? I mean, is it also trading at high valuations or is it a bit more attractive, depending on how you see things? It's actually quite a bit more attractive. So let's break down the S&P 500, which today trades at about 19 and a half times next year's earnings or next 12 months earnings. And we know, David, I think as you alluded, that you know, that's been skewed higher by some growth stocks and typically tech stocks and, you know, the, the Magnificent Seven or the Magnificent Eight, whichever one, uh, whichever one you want to include. But we know who the, the usual suspects are in that category, and they tend to be much more richly valued. So if you just strip out those big cap eight tech names, the, the forward multiple on the S&P 500 would be closer to about 16 and a half times. So uh, Canada, in contrast, our index, which has about 250 or so names, uh, many of which actually pay a dividend, trades at closer to about 13 and a half times. So um, 13 and a half versus 19 and a half for the broader S&P 500, X tech, 13 and a half versus about 16 and a half. So any any way you look at it, the Canadian market really does look attractive in this environment. Yeah. So I think another another idea that I think you see when people talking about talk sorry talk about investing in in Canada is this notion that you're actually getting indirect exposure to the U.S. Right. So Canada has a lot of I think the U.S. is obviously Canada's biggest trading partner. A lot of Canadian companies do a lot of business in uh, in the U.S. as well. So it's almost like you're getting U.S. exposure, but at, in this instance, a lower valuation. Um, does that actually hold water? Is that is that really the case, or is it is there more nuance to that? Yeah. So you know, I think if you just break down our portfolio weightings, you can get a better sense for how that applies. So um, you know, we've got about um, thirty percent of our portfolio, or actually thirty percent of the benchmark. Only about twenty twenty two percent of our portfolio is in financials, and you know, basically that's Canada's six largest banks, 
And we really only have six banks in Canada, unlike the U.S., which has got over 4,000 banks. And um, you look at those six banks, uh, they're arguably the most stable banks globally. We probably have the most stable banking sector of any region in the world. And they've done a great job you know, weathering some of the challenges we've had in the last 15 years, whether that was a global financial crisis or the pandemic. During each of those periods, very challenging periods, you know, our Canadian banks never cut a dividend, whereas during the GFC, U.S. banks were decimated, cut their dividends, stocks went down. Uh, during the pandemic, U.K. and European banks basically cut their dividends or eliminated dividends altogether. And again, during both periods, Canadian banks were unscathed. And to answer your question, when you look at the banking sector in Canada, which we think is very stable uh, and knows very stable, the data proves it. Um, in fact, you know, anywhere between 20 and 30, 20 and 35 percent of their businesses is actually coming from the U.S. So uh, Bank of Montreal um, has got a significant presence in the Midwest U.S., just completed the acquisition of Bank of the West, which is in the Western uh, U.S. Uh, so, uh, you know, doing a good job acquiring regional banks. Uh, TD Bank has been expanded, expanding into the U.S. and now. Uh, would be a top 10 bank by branches in the U.S. market. Royal Bank's got significant exposure to the U.S. And again, on average, it's about 30% of their total business is coming from the U.S. So you are getting that indirect exposure. Um, energy. So about 30% of our portfolio is in energy, and that's about half in energy producers. The other half is in energy pipelines. So the producers are much more sensitive to movements in oil and gas prices. And um, again, oil and gas prices are uh, benchmarked internationally in terms of those prices themselves. So Canada is a price taker. So as there's more demand for oil and gas, either in the US or globally, that really does, does benefit Canada. And we think that since the uh, invasion of Ukraine by Russia in February of 22, the world's come to better appreciate, again, the security and stability of energy. And there's been more of a focus on oil and natural gas in Canada, in particular on natural gas, we think really has a tremendous future. So, again, you're getting that exposure as a lot of that natural gas actually gets shipped into the U.S. Um, and, and in fact, we're getting more diversification beyond the U.S. because in the next 12 to 15 months, our first... LNG facility will be completed on the coast of British Columbia, and that natural gas is actually going to be shipped out of Canada to Asia, where Asian or international uh, gas prices are four or five multiples higher than the gas prices we're receiving today. So we're actually getting exposure and diversification beyond the U.S. on the energy side. As far as pipelines go, again, you know, Enbridge, which would be our largest pipeline waiting in the portfolio. They've got the largest North American pipeline system. So again, that's taking basically oil from Canada into the U.S. So again, you're getting that exposure. Um, the third largest waiting in the portfolio will be property. And this is our biggest overweight in the fund. And again, our property companies certainly do have more exposure to the Canadian market, but they're also giving you some exposure to the U.S. But in this part of the portfolio, again, real estate or property, you know, we really like the outlook for Canada here because you've got real constraints on supply and you've got 
tremendous demand, arguably better demand than you're seeing anywhere in the U.S. So we like that more Canadian-centric exposure in the property market. Yeah. So, so on on the subject of real estate, as you just said, you you're, you are overweight in that sector. Um, I would say if you look at the past eighteen months, or I think in any kind of uh, rate hiking cycle, it's it's a sector that people are going to have some concerns about. So, I mean, could you talk a bit more in detail about what you're invested in there, um, and also maybe elaborate a bit more on the supply demand and what sort of things are basically propping up valuations? Because from what I understand, they've actually been quite stable despite people's concerns. Yeah. So, you know, let's take it back to 2022, David, and I think that gives you a better perspective on what's happening in the property market. So um, we like real estate generally, and in many ways, real estate is just like any commodity. It's a function of supply and demand. And I'm as excited today about real estate, in particular in Canada, as I've been in the last 25 years, to be honest. Uh, why? Because the supply-demand dynamics are actually, you know, so um, imbalanced that is really driving, you know, better fundamentals in these businesses. And you know, if you look at really where they're trading today, we don't think they're trading anywhere close to what we think they're actually worth. So why are they trading at such a discount to what they're worth or discount to their net asset value? I think there's a few reasons. One, beginning in 22, um, you know, central bankers starting on this interest rate hiking cycle that's been the most rapid and significant hike in rates we've seen in decades. Uh, so that certainly has affected uh, more interest sensitive oriented sectors like REITs. Um, so that's been a headwind. Number two is that um, you know, there's been this concern that, you know, we're going into a severe recession and that's been an on again, off again concern. But having said that, I think we've largely sidestepped any severe recession. We might get some slowdown in economic activity, but nowhere near as bad as what people were fearing. So that's also been a headwind. I think the third element has been is that early this year, you started to see some real challenges in the U.S. regional banking sector and even in the banking sector in Europe, specifically Credit Suisse. And given how banking and commercial real estate are so closely aligned, that started created some real issues for the commercial real estate market and concerns for the commercial real estate market. Um, and then last but not least, there's been a concern about the office sector and uh, the ongoing challenges employers are having in getting people back into the office and the impact that's having on the amount of space that they need. So you take all those things together and that's really conspired in um, real estate today, public REITs in particular, trading at on average at about a 20% discount to what they're worth. And then the question really becomes, well, is the net asset value or what they're claiming to be what they're worth, is that in fact um, a true representation? And we think it's darn near close because um, what we're seeing fundamentally in this sector is that um, they're continuing to drive significant increases in rental rates. They're driving significant increases in uh, same property net income. Um, and even though interest rates have gone up 
over time and the capitalization rates that they're using to measure the value of their properties has gone up. That's the denominator in the equation to determine value. The numerator, which is basically the income, has gone up by just as much. So what's happening is that those net asset values really over the course of the last 8 to 12 months have stayed very stable because of that interplay between income and interest rates. Now we're at a point where we think we're nearing the end of the interest rate hiking cycle. So we might have one more bump in Canada and or the U.S., but by and large, we're in the eighth of inning of, of this ball game. So we think that's largely behind us. Uh, we think that, as I alluded earlier, we've probably sidestepped a severe recession. Um, and even with that, we're seeing rental revenue increasing. So even though some, some parts of the economy are slowing, we're not seeing that in the real estate sector. And then, you know, last but not least, we think the concerns on the office sector are really confined to office. That's a sector we don't have any exposure to in our fund, and really we won't have exposure to anywhere in our funds at Middlefield. Um, but, you know, we think that's really an anomaly in this sector because when I look at industrial property, when I consider apartments, when I consider retail, and then even in the senior housing sector, the fundamentals there, as I say, are as good as I've seen them in the last 20 years. So by and large, we think this sector is looking more and more like a coiled spring where the challenges that have held it back are largely becoming issues in the rearview mirror. And assuming this economy performs the way we think it will, i.e. it's not going down and will continue to just hum along, we think investors are going to start appreciating again the real value that they're getting in these REITs in our fund. So one of the things that seems to be propping up the REIT market, and you've alluded to this, I think, already in one of your answers, is the fairly dramatic increase in, in Canada's population over the past couple of years. And I think some people listening to this might already be aware of it, but Canada's population has increased pretty dramatically, uh, and I think probably in kind of like an unprecedented way over the past two, three years, and there's, and there's plans for that to continue going forward. So, I mean, firstly, do you think that is a, a quite a big factor in propping up REIT valuations? And secondly, do you see that feeding in to the portfolio in other ways? Um, and, and finally, I think if you look at most Western democracies at the moment, there's there's a lot of backlash to continual immigration. Um, and Canada is almost like a standout player in that regard. And, I, and so is there any kind of opposition to this? Is it, is it causing problems in any way that people should be concerned about? Yeah, it's, it's a great question because I think it does not only impact the apartment sector, but I think it has an impact on the Canadian economy and other, and other areas of the real estate market as a whole. So a few things. One, Canada really has about 55% of its population located in Canada's six largest cities. So they would be Vancouver, Edmonton, Calgary, uh, Toronto, Ottawa, Montreal. And we have a population of about 40 million people. And um, like most um, developed economies, we actually have a shortage of labor. So uh, the Canadian government's done a really good job developing an immigration system that's points-based. So you get more points for having a specific skill, uh, whether you're in that kind of 29 to 55 uh, working age uh, bracket, 
um, whether you can speak the language. And then if you have those attributes, you get more points and that makes you more eligible to come in as a landed immigrant in Canada. So in 2022, we took in about 500,000 permanent residents and about 60% come in under this economic category. So again, those are people between the ages of 29 and 55 speak the language or have a specific skill, et cetera, et cetera. So that's been very positive. And as I say, most of these people come into the major centers because that's where all the services and the infrastructure are. So about 40% of those immigrants come into the greater Toronto area where I live. And, you know, we have a shortage of housing, not only in Toronto, but in Canada as a whole. Canada has the lowest level of housing per capita of any country in the G7, and we have the highest level of immigration. So again, with 500,000 permanent residents coming in last year, that's over 1% of our population. Canadian government actually has a plan in 23 and in 24 to have an additional uh, million people come in and an additional 500,025. So about a million and a half people coming in between 23 and 2025. So that's going to continue to drive this demand for housing where we already have a shortage. So that's why we're really keen on the apartment sector. And um, we have this strong demand and we have limitations on supply. But as I said, that applies equally to the industrial property sector and even the the retail brick and mortar REIT area where our retail REITs, David, are primarily open air, necessity based or grocery anchored. They're not the shopping malls. So the REITs we own in our portfolio would be a company like Choice REIT, which is the uh, landlord to Canada's largest grocer, a company by the name of Loblaws. And we actually just had a meeting with the CEO and the CFO last week in our offices and about 80% of their properties are actually anchored by Loblaw. So that gives it tremendous stability. And with an increase in population, those people who are doing more grocery shopping or necessity-based shopping just increases and their properties do better. And even in that retail read area, as I say, the fundamentals are really good. We're talking about increasing demand from increasing levels of population. But by the same token, there's been constraints on supply in that over the last 10 years, we really haven't had any new necessity-based open-air centers uh, developed in the Canadian market. So there's a constraint on supply. And the best example of how that's played out is that Bed Bath & Beyond, which is a, a U.S. chain, uh, filed for Chapter 11, went bankrupt earlier this year. They actually had 65 locations in the Canadian market. Within about six to eight weeks, each of those 65 locations was uh, sublet to a new tenant and on average at a higher rental rate than the rate that was being paid by Bed Bath & Beyond. So that just goes to show you how tight this market is. The other thing that I think is you know, basically making big centers and our larger centers like Toronto and Vancouver do very well. We're talking about increasing demand, but again, the supply picture. So in Toronto, You've got Lake Ontario at the southern end, and then you've got the largest green belt in the developed world where you can't do any development to the northeast and west of the city. So again, there's only so many areas where you can actually build new properties, whether that's a, an apartment complex 
whether that's a new industrial facility, um, whether that's a, um, uh, a new uh, senior care home. So again, you've got this confluence of strong demand, which we think will continue, and limitations on supply, and that's basically driving rents higher. So in industrial property right now, again, the GTA is probably the hottest market in North America. It's actually the second largest industrial property market in North America, second only to the Chicago area. And we're seeing rental rate increases in Toronto right now on industrial that are about 60% above the lease that was in place. So it just shows you how tight this market is. And we don't think that's going to continue forever, but you're going to need more supply created before you can start bringing more balance into this market. I mean, I think what you're describing will probably sound familiar to lots of people listening, just because you have a, quite a similar situation here. I mean, at least in the in the southeast of the UK, where we seem to have this perpetual housing shortage and you have an area around London that's that's protected and you're not allowed to build on it. Um, and and you, you see growing demand really for that to change just because housing is, is so expensive. So do you have any fears about that sort of thing happening where basically it would, the, the sort of supply angle might change if, if, the, if there's regulatory changes that would free up land to be built on? Yeah, so you're certainly starting to see some things like that happen. So in Ontario, uh, the premier recently... Um, opened up a part of the Greenbelt to build new single-family homes. He estimates that he's going to build about 50,000, uh, that this this additional uh, uh, section of the Greenbelt, which has been open to development, will create or result in about 50,000 homes, which you know we think are necessary. But at the end of the day, there's not going to be a, a full opening of the Greenbelt anytime soon. We don't think that'll ever happen, quite frankly. But the other thing is to keep it in perspective, given the current level of immigration and growth in population, uh, together with the fact that we've already got a shortage in housing, it's estimated that we're going to need somewhere between three and a half and five million new homes in Canada uh, in order to be able to accommodate this demand. We're going to get nowhere near that. In Ontario, we're doing about 75 to 80,000 per year. David, so we're a long ways off from being able to try to achieve that. And really what that means is that rental rates are just likely to go higher. Now, in Ontario, we have rent control mechanisms in place, which basically mean that if um, I'm a tenant and you're my landlord in an apartment building and I renew my lease every year, you can only increase that lease at about 2% per annum. But as soon as I vacate that property and I move either to a home because I've now gotten married and need more space, uh, or I've just decided to leave, you can then mark the rent up for the new tenant to the market rate. And on average today, um, these apartment REITs are earning about $1,500 per month on rental rates. Uh, the market rate is closer to about $2,500 to $3,000 per month. So you can see the lift that you're getting for those vacated units. And that's just going to continue to slowly filter its way into their fundamentals. Yeah, and I mean, if anyone listening is interested more in this, just to get a brief sense of how extreme things are here, you can you can look at a website called rentals.ca, and it actually gives you a year-on-year -year and month-on-month -month comparison of rental changes in Canada across different cities. And if you look at the moment, it's just 
almost all high teens or mid teens uh, percentage changes year on year. So it is pretty dramatic. Um, but one other area that I wanted to discuss, and this is something you've touched on already in one of your previous answers, was energy. So LNG, even prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, was becoming a more popular energy source uh, just because it, it, it's cleaner than coal. And so co- countries looking to uh, replace, uh, you know, reduce the amount of coal they're burning for have, have been buying LNG instead. And my assumption would be that since the war in Ukraine started, countries have become much more aware of the benefits of dealing with a more reliable trading partner like Canada. So do you see that playing out? And and what's the opportunity there? Yeah, so um, clearly um, the demand and the appreciation for a stable and secure source of energy has increased. So prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, you know, we were moving down this road of this energy transition and trying to, you know, increase the amount of renewables that, you know, we were uh, using to generate electricity. And, you know, wasn't new information, but we all know that, you know, the wind doesn't always blow, the sun doesn't always shine. So renewables today are not a viable source of baseload power. So you need something else, whether it be nuclear, um, or uh, uh, hydro or uh, natural gas to be a good source of baseload power. And Europe was really relying on natural gas from Russia. That's effectively been cut off, and who knows, that may never recommence again. So now there's lots of natural gas that's being imported from the U.S. because the U.S. US has um, something on the order of you know eight or ten and growing number of LNG export facilities in Canada, as I mentioned earlier, starting to build out their own as well. So international gas prices, LNG prices, are much higher than the prices that we're receiving currently. So we think that's going to continue to drive growth and appreciation for that stable, secure source of energy, and in particular, natural gas um, that you're getting out of Canada. You know, Canada is very well positioned because we've got 200 plus years of natural gas reserves in this country. And again, natural gas is what we think, you know, probably the best alternative for a very secure, stable source of baseload power. Um, And then more and more, that's going to be exported beyond the U.S. um, And we think more and more that'll find its way into Europe as well. Um, So we think that's really been a factor that's changed. And this transition to renewables, you know, it's not going to play out over years. We think it likely plays out over decades. So this need for a stable, secure source of baseload power that's coming from natural gas, we think is going to have some really long-term momentum for sure. Okay, well, to finish off, if you look at the most recent inflation reading for Canada, it was 2.9%, I believe. So it was the lowest in the G7. And I think that's probably a reflection of the fact that the central bank was very quick to hike rates when inflation reared its head early on, and they sort of got, have managed to get a hold of it. Uh, you look across at the US, and it, and it doesn't seem implausible anymore that the Fed has managed to somehow navigate the country to this to this much vaunted soft landing. So taking those things into account, do you have an outlook for the near term of, of how you think you see things playing out? Sure. So, you know, our house view is that we think we've seen the worst of this interest rate hiking cycle. So they say you might get one more move. But again, with CPI just reported at 2.8 percent, 
and you know that's been steadily coming down over time. We think that should cause the Bank of Canada to stay on the sidelines going forward. And we think maybe the next move might be a downward move as opposed to an upward move on the overnight rate. And that, who knows, might happen sometime in 24. So difficult to tell. Um, but I think uh, the Canadian consumers actually weathered this storm of higher rates extremely well. Um, and I think the Bank of Canada is also aware that, you know, the average Canadian consumer has most of their net worth in their home and wants to make sure that that's being maintained over time. So we, we think that's actually going to play quite well. And having said that, we don't think rates are going back to zero anytime soon. So even though we've seen this drop of inflation, we think fully arresting inflation is going to take some time here and getting it down below the central bankers target of 2% will take time. So we think rates probably stay higher than what you've seen historically, uh, but not zero. And, um, you know, not that 5% rate that, you know, you're able to get on your um, bank deposits right now. So they're probably coming somewhere in between here in that kind of two to three, two to three and a half percent range longer term. I think that kind of environment lends itself very well to what MCT is doing. It's providing regular sources of income uh, that at our high level, as they say, currently yielding 5%, which I think has potential to grow over time. Um, we're doing that on a portfolio that we think is very attractively valued. Um, so you know, today we're seeing the Canadian market trade at a discount to the U.S. market. And we think this um, pendulum is swinging back towards more value and cyclically oriented sectors and more commodity focused sectors like the ones Canada offers. You know, in our energy portfolio, again, across the whole portfolio, every name pays a dividend, as I mentioned. But even in our energy portfolio, names like Canadian Natural Resources um, has a track record of increasing its dividend by about 20% per year over the past 20 plus years. So again, that's the type of um, income we can continue to deliver and pass through to investors, plus giving them that opportunity for some capital appreciation over time. Okay, well, that's about all we have time for. So Dean, thanks very much for joining us today. Um, if anyone listening is interested in learning more about MCT, then do head over to the Trust Intelligence website where you can you can find a research note that's a bit lengthier uh, on, the, on the trust. Um, and so yeah, Dean, thanks again. And hopefully we can chat again soon. You bet. Thanks, David.